0: Thank you, Brother Alvin. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 7 and 8, and then we'll kind of come back and take some more of the chapter of that particular passage anyway. But tonight we're going to look at the condescension of Christ. The condescension of Christ. Does anybody have Philippians 2, 7, and 8 and want to read that? Are you in Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8? Okay, now again, we are kind of picking up a little bit deeper in the chapter. We'll back up a little bit in a moment to get the context here. But Jesus Christ. And again, we are looking at his, uh, the condescension of Christ, if I can say that. And it's interesting, uh, certainly a theological term, and it's very similar, but yet I think distinct from the humiliation of Christ. And we're going to find out in a moment uh, that I think the Bible here in our text, uh, again, God's Word breathed up by the Spirit of God, does make a distinction between the two. Now, I, I wanted to make sure I at least was on the right track here, so I, I looked up a meaning for the word uh, condescension. And what it means simply is this, according to Webster, a voluntary assumption of equality with a person regarded as inferior. Let me read that again. A voluntary assumption of equality with a person regarded as inferior. So, my question did Jesus do that? Yes. He identified as us. We'll talk more about that here in a moment. I also look up the definition, the official definition of humiliation. And, again, the Bible, I mean the Bible, the dictionary says, Reducing someone to a lower position in one's own eyes or other eyes to make someone ashamed or embarrassed. To make some... I'm sorry? Okay. Okay. All right. And... uh so we think of humiliation as opposed to condescension. Uh, humiliation being reduced into a lower position in one's own eyes or other eyes to make someone ashamed or embarrassed. Now, I, I looked at that definition and I thought, well, how does that fit Christ? Uh, first of all, was Jesus ashamed of becoming a man? No. Was he embarrassed? No. But they tried to do what? They tried to make him ashamed. And they tried to embarrass him. Is that correct? And we certainly know that. So again, condescension of Christ, voluntarily, assuming uh, equality with a person who is inferior. We know Christ did that. And when we think of the humiliation, we know he wasn't ashamed of himself. Uh, He wasn't embarrassed. But they tried to make fun of him. They did not. Uh, In fact, uh, on one of the trials, they gave him a robe and put a crown of thorns on his head. For what reason? To embarrass him. You know, you say you're a king? Be one, right? Uh, on the cross. You know, come down if you say, if you are who you say you are. You know, show us you're God. So again, they did try to humiliate him. They did try to make him ashamed. But he was not himself humiliated. And here's what's interesting. So when we're thinking about the humiliation of Christ, it involves the rejection and the suffering that Jesus received. But here's another thing. He also accepted it. Isn't that true? Now, can you imagine, can you imagine when they tried that, well, when they did, when they reached out and took their hand to smack him on the cheek? What did he do? What did he do? He let them do it. Could he have prevented it? Sure he could have. Yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine next fuck his beer? What'd he do? He let him do it. And he could have stopped it. In fact, when Peter tried to stand up at his arrest, Jesus said, Peter put away your sword. Why? If I wanted to, I could call a Legion of Angels to come. And guess who'd come? The Legion of Angels. Now, we also know he didn't, he didn't need the angels to do it. He could have done it himself. So when we take, think of his humiliation of Christ, it's the rejection and suffering that, that he, not only, he not only received, but he also accepted it. So, again, a little bit. So look again, and we just read it a moment ago, in verse 7 and 8, two things. Number one, he made himself of no reputation. That's the condescension. But he also humbled himself. So when we think of uh, the condescension of Christ, the condescension of God, actually, uh, the Son of God, He assumed our nature. And He endured our nature. God became what? Flesh. He assumed our nature. So that's what He did. But the humiliation of Christ is in the following abasement and sufferings that he endured in our nature. Now, first of all, the Word was in the beginning with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Did he stop being God? No. He was God, man. 100% God, 100% man. So my question is, when they plucked his beard, did it hurt? Yes. When they, when they uh, beat him, you know, whipped him, did it bleed? Yes, it hurt. So he endured in our nature. Now, it's interesting. The fact that he assumed human nature was not in itself a part of Christ's humiliation, because he still retained it at his glorious exaltation. He was still God. And he still, and I also understand, when Christ hung on the cross, and in, in Paul's day and John's day, there were some teaching that he couldn't have hung there. His, his spirit or soul wasn't there, just his body. Can't be. And we have to understand, when he was buried, did only his spirit raise out of that grave? No. He retained that body at his glorious exaltation. Now, it's interesting. Now, think about this. God the Son, God the Son, in order for him to be in union... With created nature, he had, without a doubt, to perform an infinite condescension. God became flesh. Let's go back now. Let's read back up again to verse 6, Philippians 2. And let's read it again from verses 6 down through 9. Okay, now we're going to come back and, and, and kind of do a little more detail on these verses. But what I want you to see first of all here in verses 6 through 9 is that these verses trace for us the path of the mediator. In fact, from the highest glory to the deepest humiliation and then back again to the highest glory. And what a path that was. Now notice, first of all, in verse 6, who being in the form of God. And we'll talk more about that, but he was God. He is God. And then he says, he made himself no reputation, became a servant in the likes of men. He humbled himself, was obedient to the death of the cross. So we see his highest glory. We see his deepest humiliation. And then in verse 9, It says, God has highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. That's the path the mediator took in order to be the savior of our soul. But Let's back up to verses 1 through 5 and let's get the context of these verses we're talking, we're going to focus on tonight. Anybody want to read verses 1 through 5? Thank you, Jason. Now, wouldn't you agree that Paul is instructing believers on how they ought to relate to one another within the church? And it's interesting. Uh, We see, uh, certainly, when we think about the condescension of Christ in the f- next few verses, uh, without a doubt, we see Paul had a practical idea here. He had something very practical. He wanted to share... <coughs> so his whole point was to encourage Christians to a spiritual fellowship among themselves. And he says to the church, if you're going to get along, if you're going to be where God wants you to be, you've got to be like-minded, you've got to love one another, you've got to be humble and holy, and you've got to esteem others better than yourself and treat them that way. So... That's what we're to do. And I look at that verse, and I'm thinking, wow. The Bible says I've got to love even Alan Evans. Uh Huh? He's going to love me. And that's not always easy to do. And we could, you know, the whole list here, you know, be like-minded, to be humble, to be lowly. Did did you hear about the guy uh, going to write a book? On the ten most humble people in the world. (laughs) And the subtitle says, I'll explain how I chose the other nine. (laughs) Okay? Now, that's the way people are sometimes. But Paul says, we are to be like-minded, we're to love one another, we're to be humble, we're to be lowly, and we're to look at others as better than ourselves. So he says, let me tell you, let me give you a good example let me give you someone to pattern your life after to to pull those things off. And who does, he use, does, who does Paul use in this chapter as the example? Jesus Christ. Now think about that. He uses the example of our Lord to demonstrate how verses 1 through 5 should be fleshed out in our everyday life. How do I do it? Look how he did it. Now, by the way, How many gods are there? Just one. We're not him. And if our God, through Christ, could humble himself, should we humble ourselves? We should. If he can love everyone, should we love everyone? Sure. And so Paul said he is our example. And so Paul says if we're going to flesh this out every day in our lives, we need to have the same mind in us that was in him. We need to have the same spirit in us that was in him, the same habit in us that was in him, the habit of self-denial. And we need to have the same mind that was in him, the mind of self-sacrifice, but also how obedient was Christ. Yeah, how far did he go? Even to the death of the cross. And so we've got to have that kind of obedience to God. Jesus Christ is our example. So we have to humble ourselves beneath the mighty hand of God if we are going to be exalted by him. Remember the journey Jesus took. He was God. He condescended, became man, suffered humiliation by man, and God exalted him. So if we are going to be exalted, we've got to have the same mind. 1 Peter 5, 6. Anybody want to read that? Amen. (laughs) So when we think about the example of Christ that Paul sets before us, and again, we know God's Word is breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God, and it takes us back to the position which our mediator occupied throughout eternity. Now, my question again is this. How long... How long has God the Son existed? Forever. When did God become man? About two thousand years ago. So he's always held the position of God. And Paul reminds us, uh, he shows us that supreme dignity and glory belong to Christ even before he came a man. And then he also shows us this exactly how far. Christ condescended, if you will, and humiliation, which he descended to, and he did it all for us. God became flesh. The first part of our text tonight says, he, who being in the form of God. Being in the form of God. And that statement there reminds us first of all it affirms the absolute deity of the son the son of god he's not an angel he's not just any creature and by the way no matter how high that creature might be that angel might be uh no matter how how high in the scale of being no one can be in the form of god except the son of God being in the form of God first of all number one he subsists in the form of God and that is seen in him alone second of all he is the image of the invisible God now let's let me ask you a rhetorical question why hasn't anyone ever seen God He's what? He's a spirit, but he's invisible. He's invisible. And Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. In John chapter 14, when they ask Jesus, show us the Father, what did Jesus say? Have you seen me? You've seen the Father. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 verifies this. There, Paul is writing about Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God. So, number one, he subsists in the form of God, and it's only in Him alone. Now, by the way, I, uh, I kind of looked that thought up, and and that word subsist means He's always been, and He continues to be. Okay, He always been and continues to be. And then the third thing is is the brightness of His glory, and the express image of His person. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. Hebrews 1, verse 3. Okay, thank you. Now, again, in the context of what's going on here, uh, the writer of Hebrews is telling us how that God in times past had spoken to us in different ways, different means, But in these last days, He's spoken to us through His Son. And the writer of Hebrews says, The Son of God is the brightness of God's glory. He is the express image of God's person. And He upholds everything by the word of His power. But He also purged us from our sins. And now what's He doing? On the right hand of God. Again, we see the journey of the mediator. So the one I want to point out from Hebrew chapter one verse three is Jesus Christ is the outshining of God's glory and the exact expression of God's substance. Now let that sink in for just a moment, if you will. And the idea here is you take both these concepts because they're, they're suggested by the form and the image of God. And that, that the whole idea here is the whole nature of God is in Christ. In fact, Paul said the in Christ Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So my question again Jesus Christ, God became flesh, so he's only part God then. No. Amen. Yes, indeed. Christ is that express image. Yes. Absolutely. (laughs) Now, again, talking about who being or subsisting, and, but we have to understand it's hard to even speak of a divine person existing, but Jesus Christ does. Now, by the way, um, what does God, including Jesus, what do they need? Nothing. The Bible teaches they are self-existence. Now remember, Christ was always in the form of God. And if this appears to be, a, at least to note, His visible glory, His displayed majesty, and His manifested sovereignty. If you've seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. I don't think I can I can overemphasize this or even say it too much tonight, but again, how long has the Son been clothed with deity? Forever. Forever. Forever and ever. How long has he been adorned with divine splendor? Forever. Forever. And remember, the word was God. Somebody read John, St. John chapter 1, verse 1. What's that tell us, Alan, the Word was who? It was God. The Word was God. Now, by the way, uh, I don't remember what translation the uh, Jehovah Witnesses use, um, but their translation says the Word was a God. And uh, Jeremy, when he was taking Greek, talked to his uh, Greek professor about that. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, uh, this Greek professor says that, Uh, The Greek does not allow for that letter A to go in there. But does it change what it says? That That little letter A, yes. He was God. So remember, he was in the form of God. But he also didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God. Now again, this verse, this expression has been exegeted and translated in several different ways. Uh, I know some versions, instead of saying, I uh, thought it not proper to be equal with God, say they said it's not something that he grasped hold of. But he wasn't willing to let go of that position he had in heaven. But really, no matter how it's been translated, there are two basic thoughts in what Paul is saying. And number one is, Christ did not consider... Equality with God as something which he had to hold on to. Now think about that. He willingly became man, right? He willingly became man. But second of all, at the same time, Christ didn't think it was robbery to consider himself to be on equality with God. So number one, it wasn't something he tried to hold on to and wouldn't let loose of it. But number two, he didn't think it was robbery to be on equality with God. So which one of those statements are true? Both of them are true. That's exactly the mindset Christ said. Let this mind be anew, which was also in Christ Jesus. And so it's interesting. Both of those ideas are very defensible, and both of them is true. Now, uh, one theologian said this about this verse. Though he, Christ, pre-existed in the form of God, he did not look upon equality with God as a prize which must not slip from his grasp. Amen. He understood who he was. Now, it's interesting when we think about equal with God. Uh, In the Greek, from what I understand, equal things with God. Equal in every way with God. So the idea here is, everything God is, Christ is. Everything God is, Christ is. And the equality between God and Christ is an essential characteristic and divine attribute of the Godhead. They are co-equal. Now, it's kind of interesting. He thought it not robbery. And according to what I read, it's in the orders tense. And it indicates a definite point in time past. And the idea here, the word robbery, the idea that the original language is, is not to spoil and not to prize, but the act of taking Spoil. The Son did not consider equality with the Father and the Holy Spirit as though He was usurping their authority. Now remember, God the Father, God the Son, and God who? Holy Spirit. They're all free God. And so when Christ claimed equality with God, when the Bible says He's equal with God, It wasn't as though one day Christ said, you know what? I am going to usurp authority here. I'm going to take what's not mine. That's not the idea here. Christ esteemed that kind of equality and by doing so he was not invading another's prerogative but when Christ took on that kind of equality, he considered himself as being, if you will, entitled to that position. Was he entitled? Why? Yes, he was. And why? Because he's the Son of God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Okay, now, again, let's make sure we understand this. God, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Which one is God? God. Huh? All three, right? All three. Which was more God? None of them. They are co-equal, co-eternal. So He held the rank of one of the three, co-eternal, co-essential, co-glorious, if you will, persons of the Godhead, and the Son Jesus Christ. Considered his full and perfect equality with the other two was his. And that was unchallengeable. He had every right. He didn't usurp that authority. He didn't steal it. But there was someone who tried that one time. Ezekiel 28 verse 14. interesting Satan wanted that privilege he wanted that privilege of being God he wanted to be God now remember he wanted to be how'd that work out not good at all because his desire to have that privilege led to his fall now well, the Bible says he was the anointed cherub. And I want to submit to you, he held, a, he held a very high position among the angels, if I understand that correctly. But the problem was, well, let me ask you again, how many gods are there? There's one. And even though he was an anointed cherub, I want to submit to you tonight, he was infinitely below God and he tried to grasp equality with God. Absolutely. Indeed. And it led to his fall. Isaiah fourteen fourteen. How'd that work out? It didn't work at all. Now, you understand, Jesus didn't think it was robbery. He wasn't trying to assume something he wasn't uh, entitled to. Satan was trying to rob, usurp authority, trying to be someone he could not be. And it led to his fall. Now, it's interesting. Again, we talked about that, uh, thought not robbery. Uh, gives us the, I think, the evidence for being equal. And it signifies a real and proper equality. But it also is proof of the absolute deity of Jesus Christ. And that, my friend, is irrefutable. You cannot refute it. So how do we... grasp the significance of this term what does it mean to be equal yeah I was listening a little bit to John MacArthur this past week and just a clip and uh, he was invited to speak at Brigham Young University this has probably been some years ago I don't know how old the clip was and he received a, a very courteous letter from them and they spoke about how they enjoyed his teaching and and how he was clear on his teaching of the Word of God. Had a lot of good things to say about John MacArthur. And John MacArthur uh, wrote a letter back. And uh, very courteous. And he thanked them for their kind words about him. Uh For their... Desire to have him come and speak. He said, but the truth of the matter is that I cannot. Because your God is not the same as my God. You talk about Jesus, and the Bible says he is the son of God. He is the equal of God. But you teach, and your Bible teaches, he is the brother of Satan. And he listen to some other things. And again, not being mean. He said, but based on those few things, I simply cannot come and speak at Brigham Young. Understand something, folks. Jesus Christ is absolute deity. Absolute. And anything less than that does not fit who he is. He is absolutely equal with God. He's not just similar or close to it. He is absolutely equal. And what I want to do is kind of take a, a word search here for a verse search here for a few minutes. Because if we're going to determine the exact significance, what does it mean to be equal? Let's look at some other places where we see the, not just the, sometimes we'll see the word and then other times we'll see the concept. Okay. Go to Matthew 20 verse 12. Okay, now hold on. You, you know the story, right? The fellow went out to hire some people at the beginning of the day, early in the morning. He hired a group, hired more at noon. And by the last hour, he realized, you know, we're not going to get all the corn in the barn today. Let's get some more help here. Or whatever they were doing. And so it came time to pay. Uh, how did he determine how to pay them? Paid them all the same. And the group who came in the morning said, look. And we worked all day long. We worked through the heat of the day. And now, you treating these guys equal to us. So when it came to be paid, what was the difference? Nothing. They were on the same ground. The word equal there. Luke chapter 6 verse 34. Okay, now again, we don't see the word equal here, but Jesus uses an example of what sinners do. Uh, the one who lends is really equal to the one who borrows. And they're on equal ground. John five eighteen. Now remember, in this particular passage, Jesus didn't necessarily come out and say, I'm equal with God. But the Bible says that he said, God is my Father, and the Jews said what about that? He's claiming to be equal with God. So understand the use of the word there. Acts 11, verse 17. Okay, thank you, Jason. Now, Paul, I'm sorry, uh, Peter is referring to the time when he went to Cornelius' house, preached to the Gentiles, they received the Holy Spirit were baptized, and, of course, became part of the church. And, and Peter comes and says, look, God gave them the same gift as he gave who? As he gave us. We're on equal ground. So we understand by that what helps us, you know, in that area. Revelation 21, verse 6. Revelation 21, verse 6. Okay, now again, we don't see the word equal here. But God says, if you're thirsty, what's He going to give you? A drink of water. Water of life freely. So if you're thirsty for God, one gets this, one gets that. No, we all get the same on equal ground. And so Paul reminds us Christ was in the form of God. He was equal with God. And but it's interesting, by these verses we just read tonight, a few minutes ago there, each verse is not just a reference to the likeness only, but also a real and a proper equality a real and a proper equality. That's exactly what Jesus said about Him and God. John chapter 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. We are equal. But then we read verse like a verse of like John 14, verse 28. Anybody want to read that one? You have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If you love me, you would rejoice. Because I said, I go unto the Father... For my Father is greater than I. Uh-oh. Contradiction. I mean, you talk about throwing a wrench in a cogwheel. I and the Father are one, and my Father is greater than I. I was listening to a Chuck Swindoll preach today, and he was talking about the return of Christ. And... uh how the Millerites, uh, back in the 1800s, a guy named Miller began a religion, and he had prophesied uh, when Christ was going to return. And uh, at least two different times he pr- put it out there, and uh, Christ is coming a certain date of a certain year. And uh, one particular time, a, a store in, in a town in that area I had a sign on the door, we will be closed forever the next day, whatever the day it was. Well, the day come and went, and guess what happened? Christ didn't come. And I don't know exactly how many uh, promises he made about that, but finally, uh, Miller died. And you know what they put on the tomb? Christ will come at the appointed time. <laughs> appointed by who? By God. And I don't have the verse in our notes tonight, but Jesus says, not even the angels in heaven know the time. In fact, he said, there's only one who knows the time. Who's that? Not the Father. Well, I thought, You and the Father were one. And now you're telling me the Father is greater than I am? Now, first of all, we have to understand the Bible does not contradict itself. If there's a contradiction, it's in our understanding. Where is God coming from? And we have to understand... When we read John 10, 30, where God said, "Our Jesus, I am the fa- and my Father are one. And we read John 14, 28, when he says, I go to the Father, why? For my Father is greater than I. And because there are no contradictions in the Bible, we have to look at each of those verses and allow them to have full force, not trying to explain them away, but also understand there is not a conflict between them. Now, first of all, to understand what's going on here, and we have to discover their perfect consistency, and remember that the Bible exhibits Jesus Christ, our Savior, in two chief characters as God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and His mediator. He is God the Son. He is the second person of the Trinity. He's also the mediator. Would you agree? So that's one way the Bible presents Jesus Christ. A second way is He's also presented as the God-man the Word that became flesh. And so we think about him as a part of the Trinity, as the Son of God, as a mediator. That describes him as possessing all of the perfections of deity. All the perfection of deity. But when we see him as a God-man, the word that became flesh. Now. He is now serving. The Godhead. Let that kind of. meddle in your brain for a moment. He came. In the form of a servant. He is serving. The Godhead. So when he speaks About his essential being, he says, I and the Father are one. We are one in deity. We are part of the Trinity. As a mediator, we are one. We are one in essence. We are one in nature. But when he speaks of himself as a mediator... As a servant of the Godhead, he can say, my father is greater than I am, not essentially, but in this capacity as I serve the Godhead. And so when he says the father is greater than I, he is asserting that when he became flesh, he came to serve who? To serve God. I am serving the Father. In fact, Jesus, Jesus said, I came to do who? The will of my Father. He also said in John's Gospel, I always do the will of my Father. Okay, let me, it's kind of hard to break this down, at least for me. A servant has to have what? Say it again. A master. Jesus became a servant. Now again, that's the God-man. But essentially, he's still God. And so, he's not denying his equality with God. But what it does, it affirms the humble attitude of, Jesus had in relationship with the Father. Amen. And that's the whole point of Philippians chapter 2. How do we live in relationship with the Father? Now remember, I, I, I don't want to be repetitive, but it was Jesus is Jesus God. Yes. But he says, you know what? I'm willing to go. I'm willing to, to become lower than the eight. I'm willing to become a man to suffer in the flesh. I'm willing to do that. And it's interesting, as Paul is speaking to the Spirit of God, speaking to us in Philippians 2.6, what the Bible says there, it magnifies the divine dignity of the person of Christ. He was willing to let go and become a man. Now by the way, does Jesus possess a glory equal with God? Sure he does. He absolutely does. And again, it wasn't robbery. Christ has an un questionable right to that glory. Why? Because he's God. So it was not usurping authority. It wasn't robbery to challenge that. He is God. Now hold on. When we think about his glory, it's not accidental. And it wasn't a phenomenal one but his glory is a substantial, eternal glory because he subsists in the very form of God. Now, bear with me, it's not part of our text tonight, not part of our study. But in Mark's gospel, I know I remember where it's at there for sure, in other gospels, but in Mark chapter 8, uh, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and he takes them up on the mountain. And now we refer to that as a mount of transfiguration. What happened? Do what now? Okay. Would you agree, as Peter and John and James looked on there, his appearance changed? So my question would be, is that when he obtained the glory of God? No, he's always had the glory of God, but it was veiled in the flesh. And John said, we beheld his glory. We beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He's always had that glory. He's had a right to it wasn't robbery. He didn't usurp anything. He had every right to it because he is God. In one of John's letters, and I can only imagine this, as he was sitting there writing, inspired by the Spirit of God, he said, we handled, we touched the very word of life. Now, I don't know for sure, But I think if if John could have, he might have kicked himself in the seats of his pants. We handled it. We touched him and we missed it. For the most part, we missed it. The glory of God in Christ. Not accidental. Not just a phenomenal one. But substantial and essential Christ existed in the very form of God. What a savior. And he did it for us to show us how we can live in a fallen world and how we can live to please God. And I want to submit to you, Jesus Christ was the only one who could do that and do it effectively. So between what is infinite and what is finite, between what is eternal and what is temporal, the one who is the creator and what is the creature, it is utterly impossible there should be any equality. What am I saying? Can any of us Be equal with God? No. We're not the creator. We're the creature. Now I want to tell you, by the way, there's a lot of TV preachers saying we are little gods. That's a lie from the devil and it smells like smoke. There's only one God and we're not him. No way. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 25. That's interesting. God puts a challenge out there. Who then will you liken me to? Who compares to God? No one. No one. Who is going to be my equal? No one. It's a holy God who said that. So for any other creature, any other creation, any created being, To claim that they are equal with God would be the highest robbery and the utmost blasphemy. Well, wait a minute. Jesus claimed that. What's the difference? He was God. He wasn't created. He is God. The condescension of Christ. Well, we're not finished yet. We'll pick it up there next week. But folks, let's go home rejoicing for what Christ has done for us. Now remember, what part of that whole story did he do for himself? None. But he did it all for us. No wonder they call him the Savior. What a God.